0: Welcome to the Storytellers Live Podcast, where everyday people share real and personal stories. Some are profound and challenging, while others are more common and relatable, shared with honesty and humor. But all of these stories reveal what God can do in our lives when we trust Him with the details. Thanks for joining us. Hi, everyone. This is your host, Kelly, from the Storytellers Live team. On each episode, you'll hear a different woman share her story of God's transforming love. These stories are recorded in a live setting at weekly local gatherings, where we're aiming to build community through sharing, connecting, and encouraging one another. Most importantly, these stories reveal the faithfulness of God and how He can take what's ordinary and broken and exchange it for extraordinary and redeemed. Today's story was shared by Dixie at our Birmingham 280 gathering. If the episode's title didn't give you a heads up, please note that this story does contain some sensitive and mature content that you may not want little ears to hear. Dixie was trafficked at the age of 17 after she had already endured a few traumatic experiences. As you hear about her journey, you begin to better understand how pain, loneliness, and fear can drive our choices and decisions. And if you've never heard much about human trafficking, you might wonder how someone even gets involved or why a woman wouldn't just walk away. But as you'll learn through this story, the business of trafficking is built on deceit and manipulation. And maybe even more surprising and alarming is that trafficking is far more mainstream than we would ever imagine. In Dixie's most desperate moments, she knew the God she surrendered her life to as a teen was with her and he was showing her a way out. After years of believing that she was never enough, the Lord helped her see that she was just like that one of the 99 sheep who the shepherd goes after to rescue. Every child of God is worth fighting for, and he's been faithful to continue the work that he began in her life. Here's Dixie.
1: So I just want to say thank you, first of all, for letting me come. It's an honor to be in the room with so many women who love Jesus and are willing and wanting to hear about Jesus and what he's done in our lives. And so thank you for even just having this at your home. Um, But my name is Dixie, and I was born originally in Jackson, Mississippi. I, um, my mom met my my stepdad, when I was two years old. And for the rest of the story, I will call him my dad, so just to clarify. Um, But when I was two years old, they got married and moved down to Florida. I um, got the opportunity to be a military brat. My dad, was um, he joined the Air Force, and we were stationed in Florida for about a solid eight years. Um, I would say about during that time that they were living in Florida, my parents met a man and he introduced them to a church and they got saved. And, um, that church, um, was a very, today we would call it a legalistic church, very strict, um, and in that church, we were all homeschooled. So we all didn't go to school. We were all pretty much in the same um, homeschool. And we did things together. We did 4-H sometimes. Or we got together and did homeschool groups. So my group of friends were really, really small. <laughs> um, but... During the time of being homeschooled, I was diagnosed with dyslexia and ADD, and I struggled in kindergarten, I think it was, and... um you know, they were like, "We need to get her tested." There's, she's just got this disability. We think that she's, you know, that's why she's struggling. And um, I didn't feel like I was different. I just feel like the teacher made me different. I didn't, I didn't understand that process of being told that I had a dis- disability. So my parents were very. Um, much for not medicating their children. So they went and had me tested and they said, you definitely are dyslexic. So I spent a long time, you know, at the chalkboard drawing and exercising my brain to teach my brain how to function properly. And so that kind of helped with some of my disability. But I also struggled really hard with math and things like that. So my mom um, lovingly... Um, as loving as she is, um, and she did the best she could to, to, to help us with what she knew how to help us. Um, but I, because I struggled in school, um... I kind of was left alone to do most of my homework or most of my work by myself. And it was just easier that way for my mom. So um, I became more creative and adventurous in my mind while I was supposed to be doing school. Um, So I was very... um, You know, I I had, like, a room in my house, or I had a room, I had my bedroom, and I created, like, a very safe place in that room. It was just kind of where I spent most of my days, and so um, during that time, we got to move to Japan, and lived, I lived in Japan for about eight to, well, I I lived in Japan for about four years when I was about eight or nine years old, and um, it was one of the most, like, best experiences that I've ever had. It was a... It, I love history, so it was one of my easiest subjects in school, because I was able to read, so I was able to really in, engulf in that. And to be able to go to another country where um, war had taken place, and to get to experience that was something that I was very fascinated about. And plus, I loved animals. I loved butterflies, and lizards, and everything outside. I was a very free-spirited child. Um... But on the other side of that, I had been um, traumatized as a young child, and because I grew up in a very strict family that was just doing the best that they could to do to live life the best way that they knew how, um, talking about sex and... And boyfriends and kissing and any kind of intimate things like that was not an appropriate conversation. So because of the trauma that was taking place, I didn't know how to process what was going on. And I didn't know how to talk about it because I think every time I spoke... About it, um, I was told, you know, this is, you know, you're too young to know about this, you're too young to talk about this, or it was almost kind of condemning to kind of, how did you figure this out? How did you know about that? We don't watch anything that pertains to that, and so it was almost shocking and kind of a defensive mechanism as well. Um, so, um. When I turned about 16, no, when we lived in Japan, um, I had a situation that happened to me, and it was while I was 12 years old, and... I was so afraid of what had just happened, but more afraid of the fact that I was going to get in trouble for it. And so, when my parents found out what was going on, they confronted the parent, the other parents of the of the two gentlemen, and um, they were trying to understand what what part of my responsibility was in this situation. And the two boys, I was sexually abused by these two 16-year-old boys. And they denied that they did anything. And my parents, unfortunately, believed them and um, was very angry with me. And when I went back to my house, I suffered consequences for lying about something that had happened to me. And so it took a turn in my life where I became a little more... Guarded against my parents in an unnatural way. I just felt like I couldn't protect myself. No one, or no one could protect me, um, and no one was going to believe me because this isn't what the, this wasn't the first time that something had occurred, and I wasn't believed. So later on, when I turned, a couple of other things had taken place um, as I was a teenager that had occurred that. Confrontation was made, and the same accusations were made about me being um, about me lying. And so I just was very rebellious when I turned about 16 years old. We moved back to the States, and I started a high school for the first time. I'd never been to school, really, except when I was a kindergarten. And the pressures of living in the United States versus living in another country is so different. It's it's night and day. Um, So... I was facing so much more than I was facing moving to Japan as a child. <laughs> moving back to the United States and starting a private school. And so my clothes didn't match. I'd, or My clothes weren't up to par to everyone else's. I did not understand the style. I was struggling with dyslexia, so I was already in very low classes. I was supposed to be in 10th grade, but I... Um, Ended up doing like 7th grade math and ninth grade English and just very behind in a lot of my stuff. So that was already embarrassing. And um, during this time while I was at the school, I went to camp... um, and I had been going to this camp since I was a very young child. And I got saved at this camp. But it was more of a like a, a fear of going to hell type of saved, where um, our pastor at the time was brimstone and fire and just scared the bejeebers out of you so much. But these horrific stories of just people dying and, and dying without God. And so as a 16-year-old, you're just trying to process what these images look like and so I was just like that's it I'm going to heaven I'm going down there I'm gonna pray and about a hundred and something other teenagers did that day too so it was a very miraculous moment for all of us to be getting saved all at one time Um, but after that I went home and I had this joyous accountance and I was just very excited and everyone kept telling me, edify, edify, your accountance is glowing. And it was very encouraging. It was actually one of the most encouraging times of my life at this age during the, the move and adjustment back home. And I was like, wow, everybody is accepting me. Everybody loves me. Everybody is appreciating me. They're seeing me. Um and And then some things occurred, um, while I was at the school. I was, um, another traumatic event, and I'm, and I want to be as discreet as possible, but had taken place, and it, it was a traumatic event that, of course, no one should ever go through, but it was such an unnatural traumatic event. Um, and, Again, I was yet heard but not believed and punished in a a way where I was... They were like, we don't know what we're gonna do with you. You're just a habitual liar. You keep making these things up. You know we it's more of a shameful thing. And and it became such a condemning feeling. And so it just robbed me of so much joy and it robbed me of so much of what I was feeling in as far as being a new Christian and being and feeling my identity in Christ. So, um, I ended up running away when I was 17 years old, and I moved with a bunch of different family members in Mississippi and just kind of just kept struggling. My family was just, what do we do with you? How do we handle this? Like, what's going on? Nobody really wanted to to face the problem, but everybody wanted to ask what the problem was. And so... Um, I ended up living with a friend or with a cousin who they ended up getting me enrolled in a college at the age of 17 as a RA. And then I was dual enrolled. So I was taking GED classes and also attending college courses. Um, so it was a very big, huge responsibility for a 17 year old who had been sheltered and has been struggling with so much already. And so, I met a girl while I was an RA and she was also, I think an RA, I can't remember. But, um, she saw me one day and was like, Hey, I have someone I want you to meet. Can you ride with me to this hotel? And I will. Well, she said, "Can you ride with? Can you go with me?" She didn't really give me details, and I was just like, "Sure." So we pull up to a hotel in Mississippi, and we get out and we walk into this room. And this hotel, there's this guy, and he's very attractive. He's, um, you know, not the typical riffraff of what you would think of a, of a troublemaker or a trafficker would look like. Very educated. He, re, he, re, um, he reacted to me very smooth-like and just was very patient and calm. And, um, you know, he was just trying to get to know me a little bit, and I was very reserved. And he asked the girl to leave the hotel room, and she kind of threw a fit about it. And he, when she left, he turned around and, you know, was talking to me and told me he was choosing me over her. And that he wanted to be my boyfriend, and that should make me feel special. And he really made me feel special. And I was like, oh, so I'm kind of important to you. So I started opening up, and we got to kind of know each other for about a week or two. And... Um, Eventually, he would introduce me to a friend or two, and they kind of started seeing me around the college and taking me to the cafeteria and buying me stuff, and just started to kind of groom me into this process of feeling comfortable with them and making me feel like I was somebody special. And so um, I saw a less, less, I saw less and less of this man that was originally introducing me to all these guys, and then more and more of these two gentlemen. I say gentlemen, more like guys, just whatever. You know, and they gave me a phone, and they said... He wanted you to have this phone because you know if he calls you or if we call you we want to make sure that you're safe and you're okay and then kind of just do whatever we ask you know and this was back when cell phones just came out so if you had a cell phone it was like a real big deal but they were also really big and blocky and so <laughs> I mean I was like cool okay I'll take this phone and so they met me you know they would call me to come downstairs and meet with them and it was one night in particular and I'll never forget it because it happened so quickly and it was just paralyzing but you know these two guys asked me to come downstairs and they lit up a joint. And I had not smoked, and they had offered it to me. And I was like, okay, I'll take it. So I did. And I got high for the very first time in the backseat of that car with those two strangers. And I will never forget the way I felt was so relaxed and so comfortable in that environment that they were allowing other men to come into the environment and it wasn't making me flinch like I did not really even care and I was just enjoying this feeling of being relaxed and then the next thing I know there's these guys having they're like you know let's they're touching me and they're asking me to do things and I'm just going with it because I just feel like this all feels really good and it did it did feel good and that's why I I didn't ask them to stop. And so, you know, while they were doing it, they had a conversation and they kept saying, "Yeah, she's a G. Yeah, she's a G." And I just was like, they were using such language that I really didn't understand. And um, you know, moving up forward, eventually they started trafficking me through the college. I was 17 years old. I was a minor. And they were trafficking me through um, the, like, with some of the basketball team, the coaches, the football team. Um, And I'll never forget one of the football players was trying to have sex with me. And it was very aggressive. And I was so scared. And I was very thankful because one of the security police officers for the college campus showed up. And I thought oh gosh, this is about to help me. But actually what happened was, is he questioned me. He showed me a picture of the original ringleader that brought me in and said, have you ever met this man? And I was like, no, no, you know, it's just really shook up. And I knew that if I had said, yes, I would be a snitch. And, um, so, when I, he was like, You need to go back to your dorm. And he, they were all laughing as I was walking away. And he said, If she's not already, she will make you money. And I mean, he was just involved in this whole thing. And it was so. I just will never forget the feeling of walking back to my dorm and just kind of like a whole, like just every bit of me was left in that car. Like every bit of who I am and who I was left me in that moment. And, um, you know, I was supposed to meet them the next day and they were going to take me to somewhere in Mississippi. And I was walking across the cafeteria to meet them and my aunt pulled me aside and she was like, you need to come with me. And I was like, whoa, what are you doing here and she took me back to a room and she took me back to another room and there was some cops there and they were questioning me about what was going on and I was terrified I mean a whole whirlwind of things just changed all of a sudden and now everyone's in my face asking me about what's happening and telling me that this guy is a ringleader for a folk gang in Mississippi and that there's these girls and they've gone missing and they were all under investigation and Like, just a lot of information to take in at the age of 17. So I told them that I didn't know them, that I had no part in it, that I didn't didn't admit to anything. So you know what they did? They charged me for, at the age of 17, as a prostitute and sent me to a program where my parents said, we don't know what to do with her. We don't understand what's going on. Um, And my parents said that the judge said that they could have sent me to Juvie, but my parents were like, no, let's send her to a program. And they they did. And that program um, taught me to never talk about it. They said it was a very shameful thing. No one would ever want to marry me. No one would ever want to hear about this. There's no way God can use this story. It was a very like, ooh, it was such a condemning time for me to be feeling um, ashamed about everything that had happened. And I struggled with people. PTSD. I was, you know, in church and I would think that someone was going to come in. And so I would hit the floor and, and how to like have an exit plan and how to run out if somebody ever tried to find me. And nobody noticed it. Nobody did anything about it. And so as time goes on, I graduate this program and I get pregnant. I go home, I go back home to Florida and I get pregnant. And, um, I get pregnant at the age of 18, I have a baby, I'm sent off to another program to spend another year there till I had the baby and I came back home. I was struggling really hard, I didn't know what I was gonna do. You know, mistakes were made on both mine and my parents' end, and they decided they were going to move to Florida and kind of just leave me there in Georgia. So I didn't know what I was going to do. So I married at a very early age to the first man that I met. Um, And I don't know how to this day that I convinced him to marry me, but he was in the military, and um, he saw my situation and was like, I'll help you if you help me. And I was like, okay, whatever that looks like, it'll provide a roof over my child's head and you're in the military. So I'm very familiar with being a dependent. So, you know, we were in that marriage. I was in that marriage for about seven years. I got pregnant um, during that time and I had my daughter. So I have my son Strider and my daughter Peyton. And, um, you know, we looked really good from the outside, but everything going on on the inside was falling apart I mean everything from affairs I started the affair um, to when he was deployed and then he was having affairs but my affairs came out first <laughs> so I was always the target after um, everyone found out about my affairs no one found out about his and so then we still slowly started separating and people started finding out about his and it was just like this constant tug of war trying to make each other look bad in every way shape and form in the middle of this all is my two children during that time I moved back down to Florida and I live with my parents and I am just trying to live my life the best I know how I go back to this church and I feel like the only way they're going to accept me is to get saved again because here I am having affairs, getting pregnant or well, I was pregnant during, but just the, all this list of stuff that was going on, like this was the only way this church was going to accept me back is by my works. So I did, I did. I went down and, um, you know, they accepted me in and I get pregnant by another man a couple of months later. And, um, During that time that I got pregnant, my daughter, my four-year-old daughter, got diagnosed with cancer. Mm -hmm. And my ex-husband was coming back from Iraq about a month or two, or maybe during that time. And everyone kept telling me, lie to him and tell him that the baby's his. Just lie. And I was like, there's no way I can do that to somebody. There's just no way. So I told him, and I immediately became his target for every pain that was going on. And we would go to the hospital for my daughter's um, stuff, and... You know, we would argue in the middle of the. We we would have to make decisions as parents, and we couldn't even do that because we were carrying both so much crap in our in our marriage, and so we just showed out everywhere we were, and I just felt like this wasn't gonna work. My I needed to figure out how to get rid of this situation. And so I thought about having an abortion and I went in there and I was like, this isn't going to work. That's not where I'm at. That's, a, that's not where my heart is. And so I decided to give the baby up for adoption. And it was probably the absolute most hardest thing I've ever had to decide to do, but it was the most rewarding thing that I've ever had to do because what I didn't know was that after I gave up my child for adoption and I took my kids through that process with me and they were very um, encouraging and supportive even at the age that they were at. The family that adopted Joshua was a godsend. Um, You know, God really ordained that family to take Joshua for me. I mean, it was such a God thing. And I knew it even during all that time that that was what God had planned for that child. And I, but what I didn't know was that I was going to come home and feel like I was walking into a black hole. And so on top of postpartum and everything that goes on in my life, I had this new hole that I was just... It was bigger than anything I had ever felt. And so I was like, you know what? I am not a worthy mother. I am not a good mom. I am not valuable in this world. I am a problem. I am everything that I just was everyone that had ever told me I was. Just a liar, a problem child. My whole life just never worthy. And so... I just said, you know what, my ex-husband, you take the kids, I'll move to Atlanta because he was moving to Atlanta to be closer for my daughter's chemo. And I said, I'll be close, I'll go get a job and try to work on getting myself back together because now we're gonna have a divorce and I've never been a dependent where I was able to be independent for myself. So I moved in with a friend, we started doing drugs together and I eventually broke up we broke away from our friendship because of the drugs and because our, ch- our friends were different and we started doing different drugs. So I started hanging out with more of a club scene of friends. And one night they took me to the warehouse in the middle of a neighborhood in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'll never forget, walking in, I was already high. But when I walked in, I got even higher. And there was a group of us women that were dancing and they were kind of shuffling us up, up up on the stage. And I remember feeling like I couldn't rationalize what was happening. But what was happening was, is we were being auctioned off on this stage. And I went into a fit of paranoia because what my body knew and what my mind knew, it was just such a different, it was just a war going on. And so I walked back, you know, they shuffled me back into a car and they took me to a hotel. And I just remember trying to, to wake up, like sober up, like what's happening. And they dropped me off into a parking lot and told me to go into the hotel where these women were working this site called Backpage. And I was watching them take calls and work the front desk and cover each other and just kind of work and they were making money and they were just working this hotel and they said, hey, you have a call. And I didn't know what that meant. I was just like, okay, I mean, whatever that looks like. And so I went to go walk across the parking lot, not sure what I was about to do or who I was about to meet or anything. And this guy comes rolling into the parking lot in a really nice car. And he rolled his window down and I kind of smiled at him and he offered me, he started having a conversation with me and he was like, pointing out all of the flaws that was going on. Like, you're clearly, you're on drugs. Clearly, you haven't eaten in a long time. You need some attention. Let me give it to you. Let me feed you. Let me get you a shower. Let me help you out. And he's like, it's whatever I'm offering is going to be better than what, you're, what you've got going on here. And I just was kind of like, okay. So I get in the car with this guy. And at this point, I'm just thinking, he is either going to help me or he's going to kill me, and I really don't care because at this point, I don't care. Like, life anymore doesn't matter to me. Um, And so I was willing to risk it, and he took me to a hotel and um, was giving me everything that I needed, bare necessities. You know, he was like, I'll take you off drugs. I want you to be healthy, and just really making me feel like somebody actually wanted to be in my life like he, like he was my last hope. And so he taught me um, everything I needed to know to do this game called human trafficking. And and in the in the streets it's called hoeing or escorting or um, just Mostly escorting is, like, how we called it because it was a more classier way. We made more money than hoeing, but whatever. That was just kind of, like, different languages of how we used. Um, But when he was training me, he broke my spirits. He... Brutally punished me in many different ways. He kept my kids from me. He would give me my, he would go buy Christmas presents for my kids and take it to them. Like he got really familiar with me, but he also controlled me mentally. Um, He would always tell me, You can't think. I need to think for you. Let me think for you. Let me talk for you. Let me do everything for you. And if I opened my mouth, he would get, I would get in trouble. Like it was, Don't speak until I said so. Don't. And so I was operating off of him so I got to the point where I could not make my own decisions he had to come in and tell me to put makeup on he would have to come in and tell me you know and then he would say you can't take a shower until you make this amount of money you can't do this so I just learned to obey I learned to do what I was supposed to do when I was supposed to do it or I so that I could do these things um and eventually um he sold me to another trafficker who was a big time. It's a part of a huge network in um, in Texas, and it's a it's a very organized human trafficking ring. And when I got into that. The idea is to be the gorilla pimp so that when the girl gets over to the trafficker who has the cars and the nice house and the good stuff, they're more apt to obey and be willing to stay in this network because their spirits are broken and then they're going to rebuild you. And so... I got into that scene and I was just like, this isn't it. Like I stayed in it for about three to four months. These girls were getting butt lifts, boob jobs, you know, every, I mean, they were beautiful women making lots and lots of money and we were grinding very, very hard. We would go about, maybe two to three days not, not sleeping. And that was not with drugs. That was just the high off of making money and the amount of money we were making. And so we would do that and come back and then we would be a family and we would go and do vacation. And so it seemed like it was kind of normal, but we would get together with his partners and They would bring their girls. And so we have, like, all these traffickers with all these traffic victims getting together in very familiar, family-oriented places like South Padre, Panama City, hotels where you all stay. And people just didn't even see us. Like, they didn't notice or they didn't want to know. I don't know. But... I just saw what I started seeing and what God started speaking to my heart because, mind you, I got saved. And so the Lord is faithful to complete what He has started. And He started speaking to my heart and showing me things that I didn't at the time know that I was seeing, and that is what we call debt bondage. And it looks really good on the outside, but what was going on was this man was holding women captive by their own money and by their own works and by you know saying well I got you a boob job so now you owe me and it's like they're feeding off of this attention that they feel like they need to look better and and be better and to have all of this to be who they need to be. And just something in it just didn't feel right. And so um, with some help of my parents, whom which I hadn't spoke to in a year and a half, I called them out of the blue one day, coming from Odessa to Dallas. I said, look, I'm trying to escape the situation. They all knew that I was being trafficked. They just didn't know what it was called. They didn't know. Um, and I told them that I was trying to get a ticket from one place, from Dallas to Atlanta, and... I needed help purchasing that ticket because he was trying to get me from here to Dallas to come see him and spend time with him. But it wasn't going any further. And I was like, I want to come home. And they purchased a ticket. And I got on the bus. And I pretended like I was going to Dallas. And I get to Dallas. What I didn't think about was he was going to be there or he was going to show up went wanting to pick me up. And I was on the bus with these guys who were headed to Birmingham and the ticket that I had got from my parents went all the way to Atlanta. And as soon as I got there I saw the Bentley pull up and I was like, "Oh no." I dropped everything I I ran over to the guys and I said, I need to swap tickets. They knew my situation because I was freely talking about it on the bus. And um, they were willing to swap tickets. One of the guys was willing to swap tickets with me so that I can get on the bus and immediately leave, whereas the ticket was going to take a delay and a leave later. Mm-hmm. And the guy was willing to stay and get on the bus that was going to take him home later. And so I was very thankful for that. But that was how I escaped mystery. And I got to Atlanta, and I ended up going to jail because I had a warrant for a domestic violence that me and my ex-husband um, had. And I had faced all these charges, and um, I had money that I had to pay back, and I just couldn't do that. I didn't have the job. So then I got, you know... Um, and then I went back to the original trafficker, and he was very upset that I came back. And so he hurt me so much to the point where I knew that I was about to die. And um, one day I just started, I started buying a bunch of drugs and something kept telling me, you're going to lose this battle. You're going to lose. He is going to kill you or you're going to kill yourself. It was like somebody, something in my mind was telling me this is what was going to happen. And I was like, well as Stockholm Syndrome works, as you try to protect the trafficker, you would much rather be the one to die. So I was really trying to overdose, accidentally overdose in this hotel room. And I swear somebody prayed past this hotel one day because I tell you what, I I felt the holy spirit in the moment I over I took way too much medication that day. I overdosed, accidentally overdosed. And I wanted to die. And I just remember thinking, "Oh no." Is this what I really wanted to do? And trying to, like, take it back, but I couldn't. I couldn't take back what just happened. And so I just laid on the bed, and I was like, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die right here. And I just remember thinking, like, as a tear rolled down my face, that had been the first tear I had seen in a long time, first of all. Second of all something about God started coming back into my mind and into my heart. And I just remember thinking of all of these times, all of the stuff that I've been through, like, is there really a God? And am I about to die? I don't know where I'm going to go. And so I just was like, God, if you're real in faith, if you're real, I need your help. And it was that moment... And I became the one out of the 99 where God broke down the door and he smashed down the darkness and he robbed or he took everything away from me that was trying to kill me. That room was so dark in the middle of the day. And then all of a sudden it became so bright and so joyful and I remember almost having sober minded thoughts. It was like I all of a sudden just heard God speak to me and he was like, My child, this is exactly what you I've had to let you walk through this because for this moment. And and it was like a book. He opened and it was just like a fan book. Like you've had to go through this all of your life just to get to this place. And he showed me a cross. And he showed two of my abusers, two of my main abusers that have done the most trauma to me in my life. Both of them were in chains. He released one. And I couldn't understand why he didn't release the other. And so I'm, um, to this day, still trying to figure that out. But it was such a surreal moment. And I kept saying, okay, God, I want to get out of this situation, but how? How? and he was like he called this number and it was a probation officer or a um, dom- my one of my domestic counselors um And I was like, okay. So I called this person and he was like, now be patient. And now every hour I want you to text them, I still want to get out. I still want to get out. And every hour I text them, I still want to get out. They had to know that I was serious. They had to come up with a plan. They had to make sure that I was really ready. And um, so then I was like, but who am I going to call daddy? He was like, you're going to call me daddy. Who am I going to give my money to? You're going to (laughs) tithe. You know, like you're going to give it to me. And I just, his, like the dynamic of how the Lord came into that hotel room, that nasty, dirty hotel room, and talked to a nasty, dirty prostitute and told her, You call me daddy. And you can't tell me anything different, that the Lord loves me and the Lord loves every single one of these prostitutes, okay? I, to this day, think about that hotel room. And I was like, I grew up my whole life thinking of God as somebody that I had to work really hard to impress. I had to make him want to want me. But God wanted me all along. I didn't know that. And so that moment was so real for me that that was eight years ago. And so today, I'm standing before you as a woman who's been walking through the recovery of trauma of human trafficking and just a lifelong of mistakes and and not feeling like enough or never feeling like you know I was a good mother and I did make mistakes. I left my kids for drugs, for men. I left my kids for so many things that were not really worth it. And and I live with that, but God calls me enough. And and I know that my story is extreme. I know it can be for a lot of people, but my pain is no different than anyone else's pain. Pain is pain is pain. And God is faithful to complete what he has started. And every single time, I have to shed another layer of trauma. I have to shed another layer of, of thinking that I was doing the right thing and really like realizing that I'm not, and I'm still learning how to walk this journey god's i hang on to that verse and it's a promise that even though i make mistakes because i do i make big mistakes he's still faithful to complete what he started because when i got saved he he never left me ever and and that is that's my story
0: As you heard in the story, Dixie was once told, there's no way God can use this story. Well, friends, let's prove them wrong. Share this story with someone who needs hope, someone who might think they're beyond help or God's grace. Share this with young women in your life, especially those who are in college, who need to be aware of the tactics that traffickers are using to lure them in. Send this to moms who are having a hard time understanding or connecting with their daughter, Maybe they'll be prompted to look deeper for the root of the erratic behavior or the rebellion. And we all need the reminder that we don't have to work hard to impress the Lord or grab his attention or earn his love. He says that we are enough. Now, I don't usually pray or preach or teach in these episodes, but I wanted to close with reading something powerful to you. This is the Apostle Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. Paul says, So I kneel humbly in awe before the Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect Father of every father and child in heaven and on earth, and I pray that He would unveil within you the unlimited riches of His glory and favor until supernatural strength floods your innermost being with His divine might and explosive power. Then, by constantly using your faith, the life of Christ will be released deep inside you. And the resting place of His love will become the very source and root of your life. Then you'll be empowered to discover what every Holy One experiences, the great magnitude of the astonishing love of Christ in all its dimensions, how deeply intimate and far-reaching is His love, how enduring and inclusive it is, endless love beyond measurement that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into you, Until you are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. Never doubt God's mighty power to work in you and accomplish all this. He will achieve infinitely more than your greatest request, your most unbelievable dream, and exceed your wildest imagination. He will outdo them all, for his miraculous power constantly energizes you. Now we offer up to God all the glorious praise that rises from every church and every generation through Jesus Christ and all that will yet be manifest through time and eternity. Amen. Friends, we'll be back next Wednesday with another new story. And we'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe to whatever platform you enjoy using. Also, be sure to follow Storytellers Live on social media for the latest news and announcements. Thank you for choosing to listen to Storytellers Live today, and we hope you'll join us again soon.